0: Welcome to Built To Go, a Van Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wag, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 160, and we're going to talk about that very sad day when you have to sell your van and just how to do that. And heck maybe it's not sad because you're buying a new one. Who knows? Let's do it. We're also gonna talk about how to have a stereo in the back of your rig that doesn't eat your starter battery. A tale from the road that's a little bit different, like everything this podcast does, and a product review of a cheap IKEA toolkit. <laughs> oh, we're nothing but eclectic here. Um, First, I have an announcement to make. Yes, folks, we have reached 200,000 downloads, which is... A milestone of some sort. Um, Folks, this is a niche podcast. It's never going to have an enormous viewership. But 200,000 downloads, I think, is something to be proud of. And therefore, I shall be proud of it. And thank you very much to all of you who have listened and continue to listen. Now, you have decided, for whatever reason, to sell your van. Maybe you're tired of your van. You want a new van. Maybe you're giving up on vans. Whatever the case may be, you have a van. And it's not just a van because it's built out. That makes it a little bit harder to sell than just a regular vehicle because there's no blue book value for these things. There's no way to look up its value. And a lot of major organizations won't know how to deal with it. Carvmax, Carvana, car dealerships, they're all going to be kind of confused by your rig and they're not really going to know what to do with it. Some of them, like CarMax, will value it as though it's empty, and they may even ask you to empty it. That's right, they would say, remove your entire build, (laughs) which I'm going to guess you may not want to do. Others might look at it and just try to guesstimate what it might be worth and then lowball you, but you're not going to get the best price. The way you're going to get the best price is to do a private sale, one-on-one, between you and the buyer. The only possible exception to this is a consignment sale where if you went to a large rv dealer and told them you wanted to sell this on consignment they would agree and i would only recommend this for really really nice professional quality builds the rv dealer might be able to reach a bigger audience that would get you a better price that would make that worth it for the purposes of this podcast we're going to talk about a private person-to-person sale first thing empty it clean it make it as pristine as possible. You want your van to have all its cabinets empty, the refrigerator empty, everything empty. And if you want to do a little bit of staging, like you know, have a bowl of fruit or a bottle of wine sitting out, that's all fine. Yes, it's hokey. No, nobody ever lives in an empty van. But when people are looking to buy vans, that's what they're used to seeing. Nobody is going to be interested in buying a van that looks like you just spent a weekend hiking through the mud, even though Most of the time, that's what most of our vans look like. We can be honest here. No, you have to put its best face forward. And that requires you to empty it and clean it. If you're living in it full time, well, this is a hard thing to do. But you literally can just go to a big parking lot somewhere and empty everything out, take pictures of it, and then put it all back. It's a pain, but it's really a necessary step if you want to get top dollar. Number two, I recommend that you make a video. Make a video tour of your van and put it on YouTube. I did this with my NV200 that I sold, I had the video up there anyway, but when I went to sell the van, I changed the YouTube video so that the title said for sale. Now you can't edit YouTube videos that have been published, but you can edit the titles and the descriptions. So if you happen to have a tour of your van already up there, Go ahead and change it to for sale, and you might be surprised at who contacts you about it. I had a few people contact me through YouTube, and while none of those deals worked out, it definitely got me more exposure, and that's what the game is when you're trying to sell a van. Number three, take a lot of pictures. Do yourself a favor and take a lot of pictures now. And take boring pictures. Don't just take the pretty pictures. You're going to take those anyway, no matter what take pictures of the drawers being open, take pictures of the engine bay, take pictures of the tread on the tires and the tire codes on the tires and what the oil looks like on the dipstick. Go ahead and just spend an hour going crazy taking pictures and then bring them back home and sort them out and label them carefully. You're not going to upload all these pictures, but there's a good chance that someone's going to ask you for one of them. And what you don't want to do is get into a situation where it's Friday at 6 p.m. and it's dark out and you've got somebody on the line and they're like, hey, so uh, can you send me a picture of the oil and the tires? And you can't because you have to wait till in the morning. It's better just to have all that stuff. So take way too many pictures. And then when you post your ad, pick the 10 best. You want at least 10. A lot of sites will limit you. Those aren't the best, but if you can do 10 photos, that's a good number. You want to see the outside from several angles. You want to see the inside from several angles. And then focus on interesting features, anything you have that's unusual. My NV200, I put in this glass shelf that was underneath a cabinet and I haven't seen anybody else do that so I focused on it in the video just as a curiosity but that actually worked to my favor when I was trying to sell the van because that was something that caught people's eye and made them remember the van that's a very good thing number four is gather all your records now caveat here When people buy vehicles, they think it's very important to get a service history with all the receipts, like every oil change, every repair, and everything like that. However, it's a little bit of a lie. So gather that stuff if you can. It can never hurt to have all those records. Even if something went terribly wrong, having a record of it shows that you were a responsible owner and you fixed it. That's a good thing. But the truth is that I bought a van with excellent service records i had a record of every oil change every bit of work that was ever done on it and it still had tons of problems because that work wasn't done correctly or it was done at the wrong shop or it was the wrong work that was done records are something people ask for but they really aren't as useful as people think they are it's more of a binary thing if you have the records it shows you did some maintenance if you don't have any then well we don't know okay number five you got to figure out the price right how much you're going to ask well you can do two things with the price. You can either optimize for getting the most amount of money or you can optimize for selling it as quickly as possible. It's pretty hard to do both, so pick one. And then, how do you know if your price is reasonable? Well, like I said, that's kind of the entire problem with selling a camper van, is that we don't really have anything to go by. I mean, if you have a Winnebago Revel, then sure, you can look that up because it's a known brand name. But if you've got a 2018 Promaster 3500 that you built out with an elevator bed and hot and cold running water, I don't know what you compare that to except to look at other similar rigs. So you're going to have to spend an evening going through all the different sites that list vans for sale and see what other people are charging. Now, if you decide that you want to sell it quickly, you're going to choose the lower end of that range. If you have time and you want to make the most amount of money, pick the higher price. What I actually recommend is that you pick a wish price and an acceptable price, and you are going to keep the acceptable price quite secret. (laughs) You are never going to say that. For me, when I sold my van, I set it in the middle of those two. I didn't actually follow my advice, because I wasn't in a huge hurry, but I did want to make a decent amount of money on it. My wife was actually wanting me to put it up for several thousand dollars more, but I picked the amount that I thought it was worth, and I'd be comfortable selling it for, and that happened to be about double what the van cost me when I originally got it. So I valued my build as double what the van was. uh, And that didn't count all the miles I'd put on it, which was like 50,000 miles. So it's a tricky thing. But the only thing you can do is look for comps and then decide how much time you have. And, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask too much at first unless you're in a hurry. Let's say that you think your van's worth 20 But, you know, what the heck? Things are weird in the market right now. They're still a little strange. It's the spring. Maybe you'll find someone who falls in love with your rig. So why not list it at 25? And then what will happen is after three weeks or so, if you don't get any leads, lower it. Lower it to 22. Lower it to 23. Whatever you're comfortable with. And then change the ad. Reduced. Put a big reduced with exclamation points. Even though that's kind of an artificial sales game and I tend to hate those things, psychologically this works because people will see that, holy cow, they already reduced this by $3,000. I Even if I paid the price they're asking, I'm getting a $25,000 van for $22,000. It's not true, but that's how brains are. And, well, when you're selling a van, you want all that brain stuff in your favor. Now, where are you going to list this? You can put a sign in the window, but you're probably going to need a much bigger audience to find the right buyer. I will be completely honest here, I have had the most luck with RVTrader.com. The trader websites, and there's a whole, there's Boat Trader and ATV Trader, and basically anything you can think of, Trader.com, is a website that sells that thing. RV Trader is, in my opinion, the biggest and best way to sell your camper van, even though it's not technically an RV People are looking there for camper vans, and they don't last very long. It's a flat fee. I, it changes. There's always specials. I think the last time I listed a vehicle there, it was 75 bucks to have it up for a month. You can pay extras for having it be premium and all that stuff. I don't think any of the extras are worth it. Just get the basic plan and make sure that you have a very detailed description with lots of pictures and a, an easy way for people to contact you. There's no reason not to put it up on the free sites except for one thing. <laughs> so the free sites are Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, and this new one that I've just discovered that I think is free, but don't quote me on that, do your research, It's called VanCamper.com. And that site lists and sells vans, and it looks very nice and very straightforward, but it also looks like it's free. So that's great. The bad thing is, I haven't heard of it before. That means it doesn't have a huge audience, and maybe it will if we keep talking about it, but so check that one out too. I wouldn't list it in newspapers or the Big Nickel or anything like that. I would stick completely online because that's where the people are who are buying camper vans. The more free sites you put it on, the more crap you're going to have to deal with. There are people out there that just go and will just write to anybody who has a van they might like and ask questions that are dumb. And this has happened to me every time. So for the NV200, even though I had a full video tour and a bunch of pictures, I would get people writing me all the time saying, got any more pictures? Like I would get 10 of those a day, almost exactly the same. I kind of wonder if they were bots. And I would always reply the same way. Yes, I can take any picture you would like. What would you like a picture of? And never, not once, did I get a reply. So a serious buyer would have replied to that, very simply. I don't know why they're doing this. They, maybe they're going to try to sell me another service to sell vans or whatever. But anyway, know that if you sign up for a whole lot of free sites, you're going to get more and more crap like that. Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace are notorious for encouraging garbage communication it's kind of the cost of doing business. If you have time and not very much patience, just stick with RV Trader. You'll still get some garbage communication, but it's, it's much more manageable. Okay, so you have someone who's interested in the rig. What do you do? Well, what I have done is I will take a deposit and uh, usually I make it $500. You want a deposit that's substantial, that shows they're interested, but isn't like crazy. So, and I will accept that via anything. I will accept it via PayPal, Venmo, whatever. I will eat the fees if there are fees. It's fine. This is a cost of selling the van to me. And then, this is the tricky part, you get to decide the terms of the deposit. And this is almost a contract. Well, it's not almost a contract. It is a contract between you and the person selling the van. Is that $500 refundable? Sometimes it isn't. I know a person who sells ambulances who absolutely will not ever refund a deposit no matter what. And I am not a big fan of that. So the way I personally handle it, my personal policy is, yes, it's refundable so long as you do what you say you're going to do. For example, we will say $500 deposit and I will meet you at this location at this time. And then they get to look over the van, and if they don't like it, I give them their $500 back. If they don't show up, I will try to work with them in good faith, but if I'm never going to hear back from them, they're not going to get their money back. And it's a little tricky thing, and that can get into some legal wrangling, but it's only $500, which is, you know, it's a lot of money, but it's not the type of thing that people are going to end up in court over, usually. Now, let's say everything worked well. You got your $500, and you're selling your van for $20,000, so... When you meet them, they owe you $19,500. Now, you are not a dealer, so make that clear. You're not going to be able to help them with license plates or insurance or any of that. They're going to have to figure that out on their own. Some states make it easy where you can download a registration from the DMV for temporary removal of a vehicle, like that's how it worked for me in South Dakota. You're going to have to figure that out on your own, but make sure they understand that you can't provide a lot of the services that a dealer can. Likewise, you're not going to be charging the fees that a dealer does. So that's also a good thing. (laughs) And then meet them somewhere public. One place uh, is the police station. In fact, a lot of police stations have set up what are called eBay zones where people can do stuff with eBay or whatever. And they are right in front of the police station. There are cameras and it's not easy. And, you know, cops are walking by. It's a very safe place to do this. Or you can do it in any public place that has cameras. I have done it at truck stops. A few times, actually, and once at a parking lot near a train station that had a lot of traffic. That kind of a thing. So make sure you're doing it somewhere safe and bring a friend if you can. When you write up the bill of sale, you can download a bill of sale online. There's there's tons of templates for bill of sales, and a lot of them try to get you to pay for it. Like, it'll have you fill it out, and then when you try to print it, it'll say, Now you're going to pay us. Don't bother. Just copy the wording, put it in whatever document format you want, and print it out. It's Pretty easy to find a boilerplate. But absolutely make sure there are two things on there. Well, you need the sales price. You need your address and name, their address and name. You need that, of course. But you also need the VIN and as is. Make sure you have a sentence on there saying that this vehicle is being sold as is. No warranty or guarantees. That means that once they sign that piece of paper and hand you the money, that vehicle is theirs. And if it instantly bursts into flame and catches fire... That's on them. And uh, hopefully that won't happen. Make sure that you have a signed copy of the bill of sale as well as them with both of your signatures on it. Keep that document for a while, like years, just in case. And just as a tip on top, I just like to do this. Show some goodwill. Have the vehicle be clean when you give it to them. Fill the tank with gas. Give them some flowers or put some food and beer in the fridge. Whatever. Just a little kind of thank you for buying this van for me. It just makes the world a better place and it gives them a more charitable view towards you because inevitably, down the road, something's going to break (laughs) and it's not unlikely that their first thought will be, darn that person I bought this van from, they didn't tell me about this, blah, 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 blah. So a little bit of goodwill can certainly help. Anyway, there's a whole lot more to talk about. Obviously, it's a big topic. This is one of my longest ramblings in a while but it's an important one and i hope some of that is useful Tech talk so a lot of folks have a nice stereo in their van you know all the new vans come with pretty nice stereos but if you use them while you're parked, you're going to kill your starter battery because they are all wired into your starter battery. And with the number of speakers and amplifiers and subwoofers they have today, yeah, it can actually kill your battery pretty quickly if you have it on loud. It's, it's not like the old days where the transistor radio could play for like a day without doing any harm. Modern stereos actually draw some power. Well, you've got two options. One is that you can actually run power from your leisure battery to your stereo. Now this requires some understanding of the circuits. You have two hot wires going into your stereo. One to keep the clock settings correct and you could leave that one hooked up to the starter battery. But you have a main power wire. It's usually red and it's usually the thickest wire going into your radio, not counting the antenna. You could put a switch in that line and have it switch between the front and back battery. It's not that hard to do, but if you screw it up, mm, it could cause some problems, and if just the very thought of cutting a wire terrifies you, that's not the way to do it for you. So I present to you another way to do it. <laughs> a caveat here, you can also just put a Bluetooth speaker in the back and be done with it all and use your phone. <laughs> that's what I do. But if for some reason you like to have an actual hardwired stereo, like for some reason every RV manufacturer still does this, yeah, you can put one in the back. And the trick is that it is just going to run off your leisure battery. You just buy another stereo. Now, you're going to have to use different speakers, unfortunately, because if a radio is off, the wiring to the speaker becomes a dead short. And you basically can't hook up two stereos to the same set of speakers unless you have a switch that switches between them. And that's a whole lot of wiring. So what I suggest is, if you really want to have a stereo back there, is to find a car stereo that you like, find a place to put it in the back of your van, and give it its own speakers. You could have them be on the outside of the van, or on the inside, or portable, or whatever you want. There really isn't that much to it, but there are two tricky things that I want to tell you about. First off is the antenna. Now, you need an antenna. Even if you're not going to use the radio, if the thing has a radio, it really needs to have the antenna hooked up. They don't like it if the antenna is not hooked up. Sometimes they will use that antenna wire as a ground or a secondary ground. And I had a radio that I wasn't ever listening to the radio, and I disconnected the antenna because I didn't need it, and it just didn't work. So... You're going to need some kind of an antenna. And you can actually mount that anywhere you want. But of course, the best place is going to be on the roof. And yes, you can wire off of the antenna that you already have, but it's probably easier just to put in a new one. So that's the first caveat, an antenna. The second is that, again, you're going to have two power wires. And you want to preserve your leisure battery. So what you're going to need is a switch that you install for the main power wire, and that's how you'll turn the radio on and off. A lot of the modern radios don't have on-off switches. They simply turn on if the vehicle's on, and that's what that switch is going to simulate. The other one that keeps the clock settings and all that, you're going to run that right to hot, and that's going to be hot all the time. So think about it. If you really want to have that kind of a radio in the back of your van, you can completely do it. It's just going to be its own separate system. But before you do that, give some serious thought to the the Bluetooth speaker thing, because Boy, it's convenient, and ultimately, it doesn't take up that much space. Tales from the Road. This isn't a this is a tale. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to tell it to you because it involves some tales. <laughs> All right? Bear with me here. So, you are right now listening to a podcast, and it just occurred to me that folks now are living in a world where you can't buy an iPod iPods are no longer sold, and you may have figured this out already, but the word podcast comes from the word iPod, and iPods were called that simply because they were these little pod-like devices that were the first super successful MP3 players. They were not the first by any means, but they were the first that was as crazy successful as it was. And when people started having these all over the place, everyone started having them, you used to get your music directly from Apple and you would have to buy it. it. It wasn't a matter of just, you know, having music and downloading it. They expected you to buy all your music again using iTunes and then, you know, you would have it on your iPod and you'd download and stuff. But then they loosened that up a bit and you could put on your own files and you could, you know, rip CDs and MP3s and put them on there. And all this leads to the world we are have now, where basically everything's a subscription and or it's just free or whatever. Obviously, your phone is your iPod now. But let's think about these words here. Podcasting, iPod. When they first got that popular, somebody had the idea that they could suddenly make their own radio programs, and people could download them and listen to them every week. Now, people were doing this anyway. They were using real audio to do a thing called internet radio or internet broadcasting. That was what we thought we were doing, and uh, some of the shows were pretty good, and some of the shows morphed into podcasts that are still around today. But where did these terms come from? Well, you can probably figure out that podcasting is a play on the word broadcasting, Broadcasting is what we call using a radio to send a message. You broadcast your message. And after radio became television, which is a form of radio, that's also broadcasting. And heck, your cell phone has a lot of antennas in it, and they all do broadcasting. But that's not where the word comes from. (laughs) You see, like the iPod broadcasting for radio also stole its terminology from something else and what it stole that terminology from was a device i used when i worked on farms (laughs) and it was a strange thing when someone handed me this bag that had a handle on it and this little spinning disc at the bottom and told me to strap it to my chest fill it with urea which is just what it sounds like And then spin the handle as I walked down a field, (laughs) I was like, okay, why am I doing this? And they said, it's for fertilizer. And I was like, okay, so what do I call this sack thing? And they said, oh, that's a broadcaster. Yes, broadcasting started with farming because there were implements and there were many different kinds made to broadly cast, that is, send out your seeds your fertilizer, whatever it was that you were trying to get out onto the field. And that analogy was carried forth to radio and then became a weird portmanteau with podcasts. And now we're still talking about podcasts, even though there's no broadcasting and not even any iPods involved. Who knows what this is going to evolve into next, but uh, hey, thanks for being part of it. Product Review I'm going to do a very quick product review because I have taken a long time so far in this episode. And well, next time you go to Ikea, buy one of their cheap (laughs) toolkits. Seriously, they're like eight bucks. And in the toolkit is a hammer and a cover for the hammer to make it kind of like a soft mallet and a whole bunch of bits and a screwdriver and a tape measure and a pair of lineman's pliers. And you can do 90% of your van repairs with this. (laughs) No, seriously, what I, what is the thing I've been doing for a long time is when I go to Ikea, I go to the scratch and dent department and you will often find these toolkits in there because people drop them all the time and crack the case. And then they're like four bucks. I always grab one. They're surprisingly good quality tools and they will fit anywhere in your van. You can even put it under the hood. Doesn't matter. Throw it in your glove box, put one under your seat I promise you, at some point, you're going to be super glad you have this thing. And again, pretty good quality tools, especially for the price. A place to visit. My dad called me and said, hey, I'm looking at a cruise on the Great Lakes. And there are very few cruises on the Great Lakes. They're crazy expensive. And then he said, but I don't know if I want to go to Duluth. (laughs) Now, he lives in New England. The New England concept of Duluth is perhaps a bit different than the actual Duluth. And I have been to Duluth, and I love Duluth. Duluth, Minnesota is a fascinating place for a number of reasons. They have unique weather there, and they also have a unique vessel. And that is what I'm going to recommend that you visit this week. On the shores of Lake Superior, they have a moored vehicle. It's actually on land now. A land berth, they call it. And it is the SS Meteor. Isn't that a, an exciting name? And when you see this thing, you are going to be confused because this ship is a whaleback. And so far as we know, it is the only whaleback still afloat, so to speak, or at least above the waves, in existence today. And a whaleback is a ship that was designed in the late 19th century to stop fighting the water. <laughs> You're in a boat, it's floating, the water's trying to make the boat not float. Why fight that? And no, it's not a submarine. What it is, is it's a vessel that is meant to allow the waves to go over it. So it looks like a submarine. It rides really low in the water, and it's basically partially submerged the entire time it's sailing. The only part that's above the water is where the people are. And it was a great idea, and this ship sailed almost a hundred years So the design clearly worked. Now, you get a full tour of this vessel. It's a guided tour. Someone will take you around from room to room and tell you its entire history. They did crazy things with this ship. Like, at one point, they wanted to turn it into a tanker, and instead of just putting big tanks on it, they just decided to fill up the space between the walls. (laughs) Like, between the outer hall and the inner hall, they just used that for the oil, and some of the oil is still in there. Anyway... It's a great, simple hour, hour and a half kind of tour in the fascinating town of Duluth, Minnesota, and I think it's worth a visit, probably in the summer. Resource recommendation. A very quick resource recommendation. With all this talk about selling cars um, and and vans and such, uh, consider Carfax. Seriously, Carfax is a good thing. And what One thing you can do is to buy a Carfax on your own vehicle before you sell it. Now, it'll cost you like $39. It's not cheap, and they have specials and stuff. If you're looking at buying a new van, you can buy like a 10-pack and then do 10 different vehicles. But Carfax is a really good service that shows you all the pertinent stuff about your vehicle. Like, it will answer any questions about whether it's a Lemon Law recall, or if it is some sort of a salvage title, or anything like that. Any major event in the vehicle's history, whether it's sold, or in an accident, or had a major repair, or whatever, is found in that Carfax document. And if you buy it for yourself while you're selling a vehicle, you can post it. You can just post it and say, I am so confident in this vehicle, here's the Carfax for it. I find them interesting to look at anyway, because I like to know the history of the vehicles. And then, yeah, if you're going to buy a vehicle, a used vehicle, it's worth the $39 investment to do the Carfax. Because think about it, 39 bucks seems like a waste in some ways, but if there's something wrong with the vehicle and you catch it for 39 bucks, holy cow, that's a pretty cheap investment. So... This is not sponsored. I know I'm giving them glowing praise here. I just really like them. They didn't give me any money or anything like that. But you can learn more at www.carfax.com. That's F-A-X for facts. Definitely well worth doing. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 160. And thank you again for helping us get to 200,000 downloads. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And heck, since we're talking about selling, here's a quote from some anonymous guy who's probably a salesman and I probably wouldn't like him. But he says, sell the problem you solve, not the product. Hmm.